The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture reading is from Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last, who died and came to life, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Christ. Thank you, Dave. So, uh, good morning. This is uh, the third of seven messages in our current series on the letters in Revelation uh, to the seven churches in Asia Minor. Uh, These letters claim to be inspired by the Son of Man, who, of course, we know to be Jesus. And, uh, of course, it's the Apostle John, the beloved disciple, who is transcribing these letters for Christ. Uh, There are two letters that uh, contain only criticism. There are four letters that contain a combination of criticism and affirmation or praise. And then there's one letter that contains only affirmation, and that letter is this letter to the church at Smyrna. Now, This isn't the Smyrna right down the road. This is the Smyrna on the other side of the world, uh, with all due respect to Smyrna, Tennessee. Uh, And this letter here is, uh, you could say, the last beatitude, the seventh of the seventh beatitudes played out. The seventh beatitude says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are those who have all kinds of false, slanderous things said about them because of their identification with me, Jesus says. Great is your reward that's in heaven. And so, um, so let me just uh, name what's, what should be obvious to us at this point, and that is that Scriptures about persecution are easy for us in our part of the world to check out on, because we are outliers in terms of this subject matter. Living in a world of freedom and safety with things like religious freedom and freedom of speech as your protected rights is peculiar to the Christian story. It's not normal. And so, this kind of text is going to be a challenge for us to figure out how does this apply and how can we enter into it. Because Christians here in verse 10, as well as throughout the whole Bible, are told to expect persecution. And Jesus says you're about to suffer opposition and betrayal and injury to your body and to your reputation. There will be death for some of you. The more faithful you are, in other words, Jesus is saying, to love God and to pour yourself out in love for your neighbor, the more your neighbors, many of them, will treat you as an enemy. That is normal existence for a follower of Jesus Christ. This has been historically true. It goes all the way back to the beginning of the Bible where uh, the people of Israel were enslaved. They were taken into captivity uh, by Pharaoh's 
Egypt, and they were forced to make bricks without straw. They were oppressed. They were chased through the ocean by their oppressors. And then the time of the prophets, all of the prophets in the Old Testament, or almost all of them, are writing into a context and speaking into a context of exile. There's the Babylonian exile where, where the people of Israel taken into captivity by, by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and then there's Assyria that has also taken the people of Israel into captivity, and the prophets speak into that climate to a persecuted people their message. It's just assumed. The ascent of, of, of King David uh, began with him being oppressed and pursued and persecuted by King Saul, who was threatened by his ascending popularity, and of course, Jesus becomes the king who dies on the cross, persecuted by the Roman state as well as by the Jewish synagogues. And then the entire New Testament is written by persecuted people, by oppressed people who were persecuted and oppressed for their faith. Eleven of the twelve disciples died as martyrs for their faith. Uh, The one who got away didn't really get away at all. It was this one. It was the author of today's text, the Apostle John, who died uh, likely well into his 90s while also in exile for his faith, held in prison for his faith. The effect was not what we would expect. Uh, The ancient church father Tertullian said it's actually the blood of the martyrs that has become the seed of the church. The church has always grown the most, has always thrived the best in this kind of climate rather than a climate of religious freedom and freedom of speech. This is also true today. The church is growing the most in climates where you will likely be oppressed if you publicly identify as a Christian. Today, over 75% of the world's population lives in a municipality or a nation where there are severe religious restrictions. Today, Christians in over 600 countries are persecuted by their governments and also by their neighbors. Today, every month, approximately 322 Christians are killed for their faith, 214 churches and Christian properties are destroyed, and 772 forms of violence are perpetrated against Christians, forced marriages, rapes, beatings, imprisonments, arrests, and so on. And so, from our place of free speech and freedom of a religion, what does this have to do with us? It has a lot to do with us. And I'd like to, I'd like to argue that point under a couple of headings. I want to talk about the responsibility that we have toward persecution globally, as well as domestically, and also our experience of persecution. What does it look like in a, in a time and place like ours? So, first of all, our responsibility toward persecution. Our first responsibility is to pay attention, to not turn away, to not act and live and function as if this is somebody else's problem to deal with. These are our brothers and sisters, our siblings all over the world. Awareness is the first clarion call. And so, Jesus says, I know, I'm aware of, I'm tuned into, I'm dialed into your tribulation, into your poverty. And then there's advocacy that comes after and on the heels of awareness. He says, if you endure to the end, I will give you the crown of life. I'm for you. I'm on your side. I'm championing you all the way to the finish line. 
This is his mission, which means it is our mission toward those who are vulnerable, oppressed, and persecuted, especially those who are persecuted for their faith. This is a call to justice. Christians of all people in the world, the people of Jesus, of all people in the world are called upon for many things, one of which is to be defenders and protectors of the world's most weak and vulnerable and oppressed population, especially those who are under religious persecution, but also other forms of persecution. And so the call here, in terms of our posture, our responsibility toward persecution is twofold. Stand up and stand down. And it all depends on the context. When somebody else is being persecuted, stand up. When you're being persecuted, stand down. When somebody else is being persecuted, verse 9, I know the slander, Jesus says, that you're enduring. This is actually the Greek word that's translated blasphemy. It is actually a blasphemy against God to speak against His faithful people. Now, this is not talking about, you know, concerns that that, that people have about Christians who are jerks and who are self-righteous and smug and pharisaical. In other words, who misapply the message of Christ and who live inconsistently with the message of Christ. If people call you out for being a jerk for Jesus, change. Change. Live a life of love because that's what you're called to. But if you are called out for being faithful, if you are slandered, if false things are said about you specifically because of your identification with Jesus Christ, the rest of the church is supposed to come to your defense. You remember in Acts chapter 9 when when Saul of Tarsus was, was persecuting Christians and speaking against Christians, and Jesus Christ appears to him and says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He so identifies with his people that he takes it personally when you or I are mistreated for the sake of the gospel. You criticize my wife, I'm coming after you. You're not my friend. You injure my children, I'm coming after you. You are not my friend. And Jesus is saying the same thing. You come after my kids, I'm against you. And I'm going to stay against you, forcefully so, until you do an about face, which of course the Apostle Paul would later do. You know, Acts chapter 7, you've got Saul of Tarsus presiding over, over history's first recorded Christian martyrdom, Stephen, who was also a deacon in the first century Jerusalem church. And it says that as Stephen was, was being put to death by religious bullies who were throwing rocks at his head, he, he looks into the sky and he sees a vision of Jesus who is firmly seated at the right hand of God with his, his work completed. And it says that Jesus stands. What's going on when you stand up but your work is completed? You're, you're getting up to, to make a statement. You're taking a stand to say, that is my son that you're messing with. And if you mess with my son, I'm going to mess with you. He's fierce, Jesus is, in defense and protection of his people, and in defense and protection of all vulnerable people for that matter. You know, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity says that Christianity is not for the weak. Christianity is actually a fighting religion. It is for the weak, you know, theologically and positionally before God. We, we're so weak that we need His salvation. But it's also a religion for fighters, Lewis says. When we see something wrong in the world, when we see injustice, we're to fight. 
You know, Elie Wiesel, the Holocaust survivor, in his Nobel speech, Nobel Prize speech, said this, whenever men and women are persecuted because of their race, religion, or political views, that place must, at that moment, become the center of the universe. You know, N.T. Wright similarly said that Christians are responsible before God to exercise justice, to defend the vulnerable, to speak truth to power, in other words, to put your neck on the line, to put yourself at risk, to be willing to make things socially uncomfortable and awkward if it means speaking up on behalf of the weak and the defenseless and the unprotected. You know, Mother Teresa did this. Talk about speaking truth to power. She was asked by a sitting president to give the address at the national prayer breakfast. And from the podium, she, she's, she's like this, she's barely able to look over the podium. She, she looks at the president and the vice president square in the eye and says, stop killing your babies and give them all to me. At that moment, she became the most powerful person in this nation. She stood up. But then, there are others who are called upon by God to stand down. Where there is no freedom of speech, where there is no freedom of religion, Jesus says, I want you to be willing and ready to be faithful to me even unto death. I want you to give back to me, be willing to give back to me what I gave to you first, my whole life. I want your whole life. And this is what happened to Polycarp, who was actually a, a direct disciple of the Apostle John, also one of the early bishops of the church at Smyrna, uh, who was martyred for his faith in 160 A.D. And uh, the, the, uh, the emperor's people, the authorities, commanded him to curse Jesus Christ, and his answer right before they took his life was this, I have served Jesus Christ for 86 years and have received only good from him. How could I possibly forswear my king? You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, very, very similar in, in, in World War II uh, Germany era, he opposes Hitler as a Christian. In the name of Christ, he opposes Hitler for persecuting the Jews. He endures prison, torture, danger to his family, and ultimately uh, he is martyred for his faith. He dies, he dies the death of martyrdom. Prior to his death, martyr, uh, martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote these words, discipleship, following Jesus, means allegiance to the suffering of Christ. And it is therefore not at all surprising that Christians should be called upon to suffer. In fact, it's a joy and a token of His grace. So there really are two kinds of Christianity. One is what you could call reluctant Christianity. And this is the kind of Christianity that, that, that is most popular in places where there is not a lot of cultural or social pressure if you're a follower of Christ. It's easy to be a follower of Christ. And costly Christianity becomes this. I have to, I have to limit my sex life to just one person and I have to be married to them. I have to give up at least 10% of my income for the rest of my life. I have to lose sleep on Sundays? That's what costly Christianity amounts to, where it's easy to be a Christian. And then it gets harder when you start to really lean in and take seriously things like forgive your enemies, bless and do not curse those who persecute you. You know, forgive those who injure you. 
that's where I think in, in, in our world and in our life, a lot of you have been victims of, of, of those kinds of injuries, of relational injuries, and the call there is to forgive instead of to strike back. I think that's where maybe we're, we're able in, in our context to, to maybe most closely identify with things like what Bonhoeffer and Polycarp and the like were, were able to go through or, or were, were called upon to go through. But reluctant Christianity can get soft, and, and things, things like losing your tax break all of a sudden get associated with persecution, which would be laughable to the disciples and the Apostle John. Real Christianity, on the other hand, goes something like this, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul and my life and my all. How could I not give Him everything that I've got, having been loved as fiercely as I have and eternally as I have been loved by Him? Our responsibility toward persecution is to stay awake to it, to advocate for the weak and vulnerable, and to receive it if we're put in a position where we have to receive it. And that, that brings us to our experience of persecution. So, so in Smyrna, there, there's several things going on here because of their faith. There's social marginalization. They're, they're, they're thrown out of the synagogue. You're not, you're not in agreement with our, our Jewish, you know, uh, ideology and, 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 and philosophy and politics and approach to life, you're out. So, there was social marginalization. There was poverty. There were economic consequences, even though Smyrna, a lot like Nashville, was a very prosperous city with, with, with a lot of terrific jobs and career paths. If you identified publicly with Jesus Christ, you would be put on the margins. That was not a positive on your resume. It was the opposite. And they were slandered. Their reputations were called into question regularly, and of course, they were killed. We're talking about hostility, opposition, mistreatment, rejections that, rejection that Christians experienced specifically and precisely and uniquely because of their friendship, their public friendship with Jesus Christ. And so, the message here is expect it. It is normal to be opposed for your faith. Do not fear, he says, what you are about to suffer. The devil is about to throw some of you into prison, and you will have tribulation. Why? Why would people want to come after followers of Jesus Christ like this? Here's why. They became a threat to Roman rule and to Roman authority, which was based upon coercion and power. And in comes this, this community of, of, you know, prophetic minority community, the, the, the Christians who are living a life of aggressive love while the Roman Caesar is pouring out his aggression on everybody who would, would oppose him. One historian said that the Christians infected the world with kindness. They live a life so compelling and so influential that Rome's use of force shrank in comparison to the, the compelling, influential nature of Christianity. They won hearts. You know, threats can only take you so far, but when you win a heart, you've got them for life. And they did it through a life of love. 
You know, Emperor Julian, we, we've talked about this before, he writes this frustrated letter to one of his friends, I can't exterminate the Christians. This is a paraphrase. I can't get rid of them no matter how hard I try. They keep growing and growing and growing. You know, the blood of the martyrs becomes the seed of the church. And, and the reason he gives is this, those Christians, they love our poor better than we do. They love our people better than we love our people. And so the irony here in Rome and, and really anywhere else around the world is when you are striving to live at peace with God and to live at peace with your neighbor, some people will want to declare war on you. And this is especially true if you are resolved to follow the whole Scripture and the whole Jesus the whole time, so help you God. Let me explain how it plays out in our time and in our place I think that the, the, the realm where these realities play out the most, where you're most likely to get kicked out of a synagogue, so to speak, is in the realm of politics. And the people who want to kick you out of their synagogues are those who have conflated their politics with their faith and began to live as if the two are one of the same and don't have any contradictions between one another. And so I'm going to step on everybody's toes right now, so you can either shut me out or dial me in. At Christ Presbyterian Church, we are, we are unapologetic of saying that we are, we, are, we are trying as best we can to be as comprehensively pro-life as we can. That means, on the one hand, that we will say that the sexual revolution has actually not moved us forward, it's moved us backward. It's damaging. It's not freedom, it's slavery. And we will also say that the life of an unborn child is a full human life that is entitled to all the rights, all the protections, and all the advocacy that a 35-year-old is. That will cause some of us to get kicked out of the liberal synagogue, as it were. Infringing on a woman's rights like that, and who are you to tell me? what I'm supposed to do with my body and who I'm supposed to sleep with and not sleep with. But on the other side, you know, we sit here this weekend at the one-year anniversary of when white nationalists descended upon Charlottesville, Virginia, and spewed racism and everything went crazy about that or around that. But it really was a cultural commentary on, on where things have been for many, many decades and centuries under the hood. And what's been under the hood forever is just surfacing right now. In terms of us being in Nashville, Tennessee, we are the it city, right? We're the third coast. We're, we're a city on the rise for some. Just saw a news report yesterday that, that the rise for some represents a rapid, painful, disorienting decline for others who can no longer afford the taxes on their homes and are being pushed out of their neighborhoods, predominantly black community that's experiencing this. Last week, a 20-year-old was shot in the back while running away from a police officer in Nashville, Tennessee. I make no judgments, and you should make no judgments about who is at fault there. You don't have the whole story, and so you can't say who's at fault. The man who was running away had a gun in his hand. There were issues. But, but here's the deal. We're inoculated from that. Probably half of us haven't even heard that story. We have to care 
We have to care that a world, our world is in such a condition that one community is terrified of cops, terrified for their children, and then cops are terrified that they're going to get lumped in, the good cops, which are most cops, are going to get lumped in and blamed and persecuted for the behavior of a few. We should care. And if we don't, we have to ask ourselves, am I with Jesus? Is that dark-skinned Savior really my Savior? Is that oppressed minority Savior really my Savior? Or I concocted this 21st century American deny your neighbor, take up your comforts, and follow your dreams kind of Savior. After my own image, I love you. Jesus loves you fiercely. That's why He wants me to be pretty fierce with you sometimes about your idolatries, which are also mine. Jesus is not Republican, never has been, never will be. He's not Democrat either, never has been, never will be. He doesn't vote with you. He votes with Himself, and that's it. The whole Jesus, the whole Scripture, the whole time. Bonhoeffer said about that, it is not recognition, but rejection that is the reward that Christians get from the world. Some of you, you're too liberal for your conservative friends because of Jesus, and you're going to get thrown out of the conservative synagogues. Some of you are too conservative for your liberal friends because of Jesus, and you're going to get thrown out of the liberal synagogues. The synagogue could be a social circle. It could be a religious community. It could be any number of things. You're going to get thrown out of something if you identify with the whole Christ and the whole Scripture the whole time, no matter where you live. And Jesus' answer to this, rejoice in it. Rejoice in it. Great is your reward. And before Martin Lloyd-Jones became a preacher, he was a a very successful physician. He took a 90% salary cut, uh, and he was essentially uh, um, dismissed from all of the elite social circles that he was part of because of the, careers, the presumed career suicide that he committed. It's politely written off as a religious fanatic by those that he had studied with and, and worked alongside and healed diseases with and so on. Years later, a reporter reached out to Lloyd-Jones and asked him, was it worth it? Was it worth losing all those friends and all that status in order to be a minister on the shores of Wales? And Lloyd-Jones answered this, let me get this straight with you. I gave up nothing and I gained everything. Why? It's right here. Because to endure for Christ is to conquer. Hashtag winning. The words of the first and the last who died, I know your tribulation, your poverty, your slander. I've got your back, Jesus says. I have solidarity with you. You are never alone when you're with me. When the world treats you as a nobody because of Jesus, you are instantly inducted into heaven's hall of fame. Read the book of Hebrews. You are surrounded it's a book written to persecuted believers. You're surrounded by a great, invisible cloud of witnesses that includes Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah, David, Rahab, Peter, Paul, and Mary, not the singers. You know, Eric Church has this song called Mr. Misunderstood. These are great gospel lyrics. 
You know, in the same way that the offertory connected, you know, the seasons to, to God. I love how, you know, songwriters can see all of life, all the details of the world liturgically. Maybe Eric, Eric Church was thinking liturgically too when he wrote these words. Hey there, weird kid in your high top shoes, sitting in the back of the class, I was just like you. Always left out, never fit in, owning that path you're walking in, Mr. Misunderstood. Hey there, weird kid in your high top shoes, sitting in the back of the class, I was just like you. Mr. Misunderstood, I understand. Isn't that precisely what Jesus is saying to Smyrna right here? I understand. I understand. I went first. I'm with you, for you, to the very end of the age. You're vulnerable, but you're not. You're weak, but you are fortified. You are pressed down, but you will never be destroyed. You're a conqueror. You're a conqueror, he says. He understands and he stands with you and for you. He's one of us. And you're one of his tribe as well. The last encouragement here is to to look at the big picture, to understand the big picture, and to live in hope. The one who died also came to life. So be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. You will not be hurt by death. I mean, for real? I mean, they're, they're, they're throwing our children into the flames. They're using, you know, our, our, our spouses as tiki torches to light up the night. They're, they're putting our, our men into gladiator arenas to fight to the death for sport, and you're telling us we won't be hurt. For real? This is a statement, if our, the eyes of our hearts can see it, that, that, that will enable you, enable you once you apprehend it to have hope in any and every situation. It is essentially a statement of the brevity of the life that you're living right now, of the brevity of seasons where there will be anything more than affirmations, such as condemnations and critiques. There will be no condemnations and no critiques. We, we are in a, we're in a season right now of history that represents a single word and a single sentence and a single paragraph and a single chapter of, of an everlasting story with infinite numbers of chapters. That's the brevity of life. You remember Carl, Carl Sagan, you know, showing us the pale blue dot, the, the, the picture of the earth from the scale and, and, and perspective of the rest of the universe? It's nothing. What feels and seems enormous and overbearing and overwhelming to us is a blip in the story of God, and so is suffering and persecution. It is going to be short-lived. What you've got awaiting for you is the same thing that I have accomplished for you and for myself. I died and I came to life. And this is no ordinary life. This is life to the full. You know, this is the one, Jesus Christ, who voluntarily endured the ultimate persecution. And it says again in Hebrews, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so you will not grow faint-hearted. When we are able to apprehend and to comprehend and to internalize the weight of, of suffering and oppression and injury and slander and being kicked out of the conservative synagogues and being kicked out of the liberal synagogues, you had Pharisee and Sadducee enemies, religious and secular enemies. He gets it. But he didn't just do that as an example, he did that as a rescue because we've kicked him out of our synagogues as well. 
We've rejected Him for our idolatries and our partisan leanings and, and our secret sins and dark misdeeds. We've kicked Him out. We exile Him every single day. Like Peter denying Him three times, we are simultaneously betraying Him and loving Him all the time. We are duplicitous and fiercely loved all at the same time. He died and rose again, and so will we. And so, when, when we, in that context, can survey the wondrous cross and, and this table that, that points to it, on which the Prince of Glory died, can we once again remember and return to the reality that this love, so amazing, so divine, demands our soul, our life, our all? Are we with Him? Let's be with Him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this is intense. It's intense. Blessed are the persecuted. Lord, if we just stop and marinate in that. Blessed are you when you are injured. Blessed are you when you are mischaracterized. Blessed are you when you are kicked out of social circles. Blessed are you when you become less marketable. Blessed are you when your reputation suffers a hit because of Jesus. Lord, I admit, I, I do not relate to any of this personally, and I need the grace of your Holy Spirit to, to massage my heart to lean into these things. I hate being criticized. I hate being misunderstood. Everybody in this room that knows me knows that. Now, I love economic security. And I love social acceptance. Father, teach me what it means to live in instead. What these truths are pointing me and us to. This church, Smyrna, was the only church of the seven that got all praise. Surely there's a message in there for us as well. May our hearts receive it even as we now receive a table that speaks to us of breaking and bleeding, a persecuted life that has achieved and accomplished for us the smile of heaven. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.